Good morning again. Uh, we're happy that you're with us today for worship. Let's begin with prayer just before we open the word. Lord Jesus, you are uh, the bread of life. You are the living water. And we're coming to you now, Lord, to feast and to drink of the living fountain as we go to your word. Uh, we pray, dear God, that you would bless us with your voice and your presence, uh, that we would listen well, and that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only uh, when all is said and done. We pray these things in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, when I was about 13 years old or so, um, I went on a shopping trip with my mother to what was then Wolco. I know I'm dating myself. Uh, we were going to shop for clothes uh, for myself. Now, in the days leading up to that shopping trip, uh, my attitude as a 13-year-old boy, my attitude toward my mother was less than ideal. So already, by the time we went on the shopping trip, there was already some tension that had built up in the relationship uh, between myself and my mom. So when I requested on that shopping trip that uh, my mother not walk close to me, uh, lest I be seen by my friends walking with my mother, that did not go over well at all. And then when I showed... Um, little gratitude for the clothing that my mother had purchased for me that day, that also did not go over well at all. I will never forget coming home with my mother that day. As we pulled the car into the garage, she turned off the ignition, and then I remember she hit the lock button on the car in order to send a message to me that I better stay put and listen to what she had to say, and then for what seemed like hours, probably it was less than five minutes, but it seemed like hours, she then proceeded to tell me, as I sat there in the passenger seat, just exactly what she thought of my attitude. She set me straight. She downloaded onto me a perspective about life that I desperately needed to hear. She threw cold water on my poor attitude in order to sort of help orient me to reality. She reset me when I needed a reset. Well, the psalm that we have before us this morning is Psalm 90. We can think of Psalm 90 as sort of like my mother in that moment giving us a healthy dose of perspective. And we are the kids who are sitting in the passenger seat being sobered up to reality. Psalm 90 is a grace to us. The effect of this psalm is to sort of knock us out of an unhealthy orbit. This psalm presents us with a true reality of our human condition. The words of Psalm 90 may be hard for us to hear, but we need to hear the words of this Psalm, this word of the Lord. We need to sit with this Psalm and digest what God is saying to us here. Now, first of all, Psalm 90 is the only Psalm that is attributed to Moses. 
The superscript, uh, so the, the words that are above the, the first verse of the psalm, they say this, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So Moses is the author of this psalm, and notice that the psalm that he wrote is called a prayer. This is a psalm that is addressed to God. It is a prayer. And even more specifically, it is what we could call a lament psalm, a lament psalm or a lament prayer. In this psalm, Moses is voicing the lament of Israel to God. He is voicing the pain of the community to God. We're not exactly sure what the, what the precise situation was that Israel found uh, themselves in here, but it was some sort of season of distress that they were in. It was a time of great discouragement, of great affliction. There are definitely par parallels with that context with what we are going through right now. Alan Ross, in his Psalms commentary, argues that the season of distress in question was Israel's time in the wilderness. You may recall that Israel had sinned grievously against the Lord. They had rebelled uh, flagrantly against God. And finally, in Numbers chapter 14, God had levied his judgment against Israel. God declared in that chapter that the rebellious generation would in fact die in the wilderness. That generation would not get to see the promised land. Well, it's probable that Moses wrote Psalm 90 at some point in that rather dark period of Israel's history when he himself understood that he also would soon die along with the rest of that generation. Well, with all of that then as background, let's go to the Psalm, to Psalm 90. Let's take our place in the passenger seat and let's listen to our Father give us hard words, but, but words offered in grace, words that we desperately need to hear as his human creatures. Verse one, Adonai, sovereign Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now focus with me on those two words, dwelling place. The term in the original Hebrew is normally used for the lair of an animal, a home that an animal makes for itself uh, with its safety in mind, with its security in mind. Here, Moses says that God himself is his people's lair, his people's home. God himself is our dwelling place, our place of safe shelter. Now, if Alan Ross is correct that this psalm uh, was written during the wilderness wanderings, when Israel, at that point, they had no permanent address, then this verse takes on enhanced meaning. We may be homeless on this earth, but God is our home. God has been our habitation, in fact, through all generations. Now, just before we leave this first verse, notice already here that we have the theme of 
time in verse one with that phrase, in all generations, the theme of time. Moses is reflecting on a long period of time here, all generations. And this theme of time, we could argue, is perhaps the major theme of Psalm 90, the theme of time. We're going to see this crop up in nearly every verse of the psalm. Let's go to verse 2. Before, so notice the word before, that's also a time word. Before the mountains were brought forth. So before Mount Sinai was brought forth, before Mount McKinley was brought forth, before Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Everest were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. What's Moses getting at here? He's getting at the fact that before this world was ever created, God was. Before this world was ever created, God was. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, God was when nothing else was. In the words of John Frame, the creator precedes the creation. The creator precedes the creation. Or in the words of James Mays, the being of God precedes all that exists and is the precondition of and sovereign over all that exists. What Moses is voicing in this verse is, to use the fancy term, what we call God's eternality. His eternality. Listen, God has no beginning and God has no end. All that God is, is eternal. He is uncreated. And therefore, he is not subject to change through time like every other created thing is subject to change. And because God is eternal, he sees, listen, he sees at any given moment all of what we call the past, all of what we call the present, and all of what we call the future. God is eternally present, eternally present. God does work in what we experience as time. For sure he works in time, but God also transcends time. Again, as John Frame says, God is, quote, he is both inside and outside of the temporal time-bound box. He's both inside and outside of the temporal box, a box that can neither confine him nor keep him out. Close quote. Now, you and I were, were here in the passenger seat and we're listening, and so far, God in his word is setting us straight concerning his eternality. He wants us to see, and he wants us to tremble even, at his grandeur uh, in terms of his own eternal life. 
He wants us to see how categorically different he is from us. And then in verse 3, he begins a vivid, sobering contrast between us and him. Verse 3. You, God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. He's talking about me here and he's talking about you. He's talking about every single person of Adam's race that has ever walked this earth. He's talking in this verse about our death, about our mortality, our being buried in a cemetery. He's raising a subject here that in the West especially, we would prefer not to dwell on. We would prefer to distract ourselves from the fact of our dying But God knows that it serves us far better to confront us with the fact that each of us will one day die. God will not join us in avoiding this subject of our death. Now clearly here in verse 3, there is an allusion being made to Genesis 3, 19. God had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, telling them that they would surely die if they did. But Adam and Eve, they didn't listen. They ate. And in Genesis 3.19, God told them that now they'd eaten what God told them not to eat. Now they would return to the ground from which they had been taken. For you are dust, he said, and to dust you shall return. Adam and Eve, at the suggestion of the serpent, had wanted to be like God, and so they ate. Well, it turned out that they weren't like the eternal God. God put them back to the dust for their rebellion. Can you see here in this psalm the vivid contrast already that's being made uh, between verses 1 and 2 where we listen to God speak of his eternality and verse 3 where we human beings are described as mortal, as frail, made of dust and going back to the dust one day. I hope you can see this vivid contrast. Well, we keep listening from the passenger seat to the hard words of grace from our Father in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight, God, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Again, friends, our experience of time and God's relationship to time are being contrasted here. To God, a full 1,000 years is like a single day. A thousand years is like nothing to God. Methuselah lived nearly a thousand years, which to us is an unreasonably long life. But to God, 
Methuselah's life was like less than a day. And notice here that Moses compares also, he compares a thousand years to a watch in the night from the perspective of God, a watch in the night. Well, that was only four hours long. That's how long a watch in the night was. So to God, a whole millennium, a thousand years is like a four hour watch period. God's relationship to time is very different than ours is. He is God and we are not. He is eternal. We are temporal. He is creator. We are creatures. He is worthy of all creation's praise. We are not. He's setting us straight on all this. Verses five and six. Let's take these verses together. You, God, you sweep them away. You sweep away mortal human beings as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is, is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. You know, when I was about 19 or 20 years old, about as old as my eldest son is now, I had no concept that one day I would die. Or at least death felt so far off to me back then that I didn't really, it didn't enter my mind very much at all. Well, at age 50, these verses are starting to gain much more significance for me. Life is brief. Like a cloud that is here one moment and gone the next. Moses is saying here that in this life, we are like grass that grows green one minute and then turns yellow and dies the next. There is a brevity about us. The morning of our life, so birth, childhood, youth, the morning of our life gives way very quickly to the evening of our life, if, if God should grant us an evening to our life, adulthood, old age, and finally death. It all goes very quickly. And notice again, as it had been in verse 3, with God as the one, God as the one who declares when we return to the dust. So it is here as God is the one who sweeps people away at death as with a flood. Now, what an interesting image this is. The idea from the Hebrew here is that God pours out a flood, like sort of like you'd pour out a full tanker truck full of water, and frail, weak, mortal human beings are swept away in death. Now, as we come to verses 7 through 11, um, I, I want you to call to mind that story again that I told off the top where my mom reoriented me to reality in the car that day, where she gave me some hard words, made me squirm in order to reset me, in order to help me, in order to help me grow up and see things as they really were. Well, the next five verses of the psalm are really hard verses. 
Some of you are probably going to wonder out loud why we're preaching on this particular psalm today. Well, God has led us here this morning. He wants us to listen, even though this is a rather hard word here. Again, the context of the psalm is that Israel was encountering some very difficult days. They are lamenting to God here. And now what they do is they zero in on the reason why they will die. They zero in on the ultimate reason why death is a reality for all of us in the world. Let's go to verse 7. Now, I would bet a fortune that none of us have Psalm 90, verse 7 as our life verse. Listen to what Moses says here. For we are brought to an end by your anger, God. By your wrath, we are dismayed. This is not a verse that you're going to find on a nice coffee cup that you buy from the Christian bookstore. In fact, the version that I just read, the ESV version of the verse, it's not quite strong enough. The second uh, phrase, the second line of the verse is more literally this. We are terrified by your indignation. Now, what we need to concentrate on here are what I would call the parameters of relationship that cause our biological dying. The parameters of relationship. First of all, the relationship in question here is the relationship between us as finite, frail, mortal creatures The relationship between us and the eternal God of verses 1 and 2. Each and every human being, no matter who they are, is, by virtue of being one of God's creatures, is in some sort of relationship with him. doesn't matter if they are a believer or unbeliever. By virtue of their being created by God, they are in some sort of relationship with him. And here... God is said to be the agent, the actor who ends each human life. God gives us our lives and God ends our lives at death. And the reason that he ends our lives at death has to do with his anger. We are brought to an end by your anger says Moses. Anger at what? Anger at our rebellion. Anger at our sin. Anger at our mutiny against our Creator. Anger at our idolatry. Anger at our wicked pretensions to be God on our own. And the wages of sin says Romans 6.23, is death. Death is the sentence, the penalty, that God has decreed on our sin against him. Now, I want you to hang with me here, because later on I'm going to come back to these verses and we're going to read them, this is very important, 
in the light of Christ and the hope of the gospel. But for now, let's, let's just feel the weight of the reality. Let it make us squirm. One day we will die physically and that death is a reality because of our human sin. Every gravestone up on Mount Royal speaks, in fact, of God's wrath on human sin. My own gravestone will speak in that way, and so will yours. Moses continues in verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We have nowhere to go from God. We cannot hide even our most private sins from him. God sees all, all is laid bare to him. And this holy God hates sin. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Again, you're not going to find this verse on any um, oven mitts that you buy at the Christian bookstore. This verse is saying that the brevity of our human life before we go to lie in the cemetery, the brevity of our human life is itself a statement about God's divine death sentence that he pronounced on our sin. Adam was made originally to last eternally with God But when Adam sinned, his life was dramatically shortened. Human life became brief. We feel that reality, don't we? Verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span, listen, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now, for any of you who were with us for our study on Ecclesiastes, you'll probably notice here that Moses sounds in this verse, he sounds a lot like Kohelet, doesn't he? Kohelet is the main speaker throughout uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. So this verse has an Ecclesiastes sort of ring to it. But God is getting really real with us here. I think we have to confess, especially if we've lived on this planet for a while, we have to confess that life on this fallen planet can be characterized as it is here. Toil and trouble. Can you see here how God in his word just sort of dispenses with any uh, pie in the sky notions that we may have uh, about our life on this fallen planet? He sweeps away any shallow kind of overly optimistic notions of life that we may have. He says here, get real. Life is brief like a shadow, 70, maybe 80 years, and life is full of difficulty on this fallen planet, and then we die. We're sitting in the passenger seat, squirming somewhat as we listen to God graciously, pop our bubbles and knock us into his orbit and away from our faulty orbits. 
He's sobering us here, isn't he? He's sobering us to great, true realities. And it's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard to hear. Many of us would rather be in a more comforting psalm this morning, but here we are. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger, Lord, and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, the Hebrew in this verse is a little hard to bring over into English. Let's just ponder this for a moment. I think what Moses is saying here is something like this. There is a fear. There is a reverence. There is an awe of God that would be commensurate with or it would be appropriate to the terror of God's wrathful anger. And none of us have that fear because none of us know the full power of God's wrath. None of us fear God as we ought. None of us fear God with the fear that is due him. In our everyday, we, we don't generally see our situation and our condition as it really is. That we are totally depraved, frail human creatures in relationship with the holy, eternal God who can sweep us away at any moment if he likes. We don't consider our reality enough. We don't take our condition as seriously as we ought. So, says Moses in verse 12, teach us. In verse 12, it's like we speak from the passenger seat now to our Father who has been giving us his hard words. We say to him now, Lord, you must teach us. Lord, you must instruct us. You must reveal to us your words, your thoughts, your instructions. And what does Moses want the Lord to teach here? He says, teach us to what? To number our days. He doesn't say give us more days. He says, teach us to number our days. That is, in view, in view of our frailty, in view of our mortality, in view of the limits, Lord, that you have set on our lives on this fallen planet because of our sin, Lord, instruct us how to carry out every moment of our brief transient life on this fallen earth. Lord, how do we plan Lord, how do we execute our plans? How do we speak, Lord? How do we love? How do we serve? How do we use the short time that you have given us in righteousness? We run to you, Lord. Teach us, because where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It is you with whom we have to do as your creatures. We beg for your mercy Teach us to number our days that we would get a heart of wisdom. 
We fear you, O God, even as we are asking you to teach us, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to be wise. Verse 13, return, O Yahweh, how long? Have pity on your servants. Our condition on this fallen planet is so hard and is so hopeless unless you, Lord, show us compassion. Have compassion on us. Have pity on us. Have mercy on us. Verse 14, sate us. Fill us, satisfy us in the morning. Will there be a new morning of your compassion on us, O Lord, after the dark night of your anger and wrath? We are praying boldly for you to show us a new morning of compassion that will come after your fierce anger. Satisfy us in the morning with your compassion, with your hesed, with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. As much time as we have spent feeling the punishment from you, Lord, for our sin. As many years as we've been experiencing your wrath. Make for us just as much time now experiencing your joy and experiencing your gladness. May your mercy now triumph over your wrath, Lord. Verse 16 let your work be shown to your servants. Let your work be shown to your servants. Yes, do it, Lord. We are praying boldly now to you that you would unleash upon us your dynamic, dramatic work of divine blessing after all of the suffering that we have endured and show us your glorious power to your servants' children. Verse 17 let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, we humbly confess to you that indeed we are like withering grass. We know that. We know that our bodies are mortal while you are eternal. We realize that this life is full of toil and trouble brought about by our own sin. We know, O oh Lord, that your wrath on our sin stands behind our biological death. We know that one day each of us will be swept away by your power. But Lord, right now, for us who are frail and weak, for us as creatures, we pray, based on our covenant relationship with you, we pray that you would have mercy and make our days glad and establish the work of our mortal hands. Well, I remember that after my mother monologued at me in the car that day um, after, after our shopping trip was done, after she inundated me as she did with her painful yet necessary words, we then sat briefly in silence in the car. And then after a time, we hugged. 
She had said what she needed to say. I had listened to her as hard as it had been. I got some needed perspective. And then we hugged. Many of us have had something of a hard time this morning listening to what God has had to say to us in Psalm 90. But now God's loving hug comes to us in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to listen. Nothing has changed from the time of Moses until now in terms of the brevity of our earthly lives and in terms of the stubborn fact that our bodies will one day die unless Jesus returns first. That hasn't changed. One day our bodies will lie in a cemetery. And also to this day, our biological deaths are still connected to God's wrath against our sin. However, because of Jesus Christ, our dying is totally, utterly changed. Let's go to a few verses in our psalm and just quickly read them as we should through the lens of the New Testament and the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Moses talked in verse 8 about our iniquities and our secret sins being before God, we as believers in Jesus Christ can say, Hallelujah and praise God because Jesus, by his blood, has atoned, hasn't he, has atoned for our iniquities and our secret sins. Gospel good news. In Jesus, God has done what? He has thrown our sins behind his back. He has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Our guilt before God is removed because of our substitute and Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And the wrath, the anger of God that the psalm talks about so much, that wrath has been taken by Jesus on the cross for the believer. That wrath has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross for us on our behalf in a substitutionary way. Praise God and hallelujah, it is true. And if we are in Jesus, we have eternal life, eternal life. Remember God, the eternity of God in verses one and two of the psalm. We have the life of the eternal God that we met in verses one and two. When you die as a believer, your body will be laid to rest indeed, but your soul will not be there. Your soul will be immediately with Jesus when you die and your body in the cemetery waits and sleeps. It waits for the resurrection that is still to come, at which point your soul and body will be reunited, glorified, to live eternally on the new earth with Jesus, physically. Jesus is the answer to the prayer in verse 13 of our psalm. Israel had prayed there, Moses had prayed there, that God would have pity on his people, 
God indeed has had compassion on us in his son, Jesus Christ. His wrath against us has been stayed. His wrath has been transmuted, in fact, into mercy. And when Moses prayed, I think he prayed rather modestly in verse 15, when he prayed that God would give as many days of gladness as he had given of wrath. Well, the New Testament takes us way beyond that sort of uh, evenly balanced equation. As many days of gladness as you've given us. The New Testament takes us way beyond that because of Jesus and his saving work. What God has worked for the believer is an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 God has shown his mighty work and his glorious power indeed to his servants, Jesus is the favor of God upon God's people. Well, friends, Psalm 90 is a psalm that sobers us. It's a psalm that brings us down to earth, that resets us as it puts before us the realities of our life on earth. It's an uncomfortable psalm. In many ways it is, but it's necessary God has put it in his word because it's necessary for us. And perhaps the greatest message that it leaves us with is our need for the Savior whom God has sent, Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected and soon coming Lord, who does what? Who saves us from wrath, who covers our sins, who makes us alive in the Spirit, and who turns our dying into life eternal. Whoever you are, as you watch right now, I want to uh, put the question to you. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him to save you, to set you in right relationship with the God with whom you have to do, to set you in right relationship by his atoning blood? Is Jesus the Lord of your life. If not, I want to encourage you to take time to pray, even now, pray today to receive him, uh, to turn from your sin and to ask him to forgive you. Plead his blood over your life and ask him to be Lord over the remainder of your brief life on this earth. Receive him and receive eternal life. Amen.